Welcome to this episode of Diversity in Professionalism, a parallel series of Rue Career Radio, the podcast dedicated to using our platform to talk about important topics and issues related to diversity in the hiring process, in the workplace, and in representation. My name is Daniel Folk. I'm the Manager of Employer Development and Engagement at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. I identify as a white, non-disabled male, and my pronouns are he, him. And I'm Taylor Mickle. I use they, them pronouns, and I'm a white, queer, non-disabled counseling graduate student and a graduate assistant career counselor at UMKC Career Services. And we're your hosts for this episode of Diversity in Professionalism. Before we get started, let's get our housekeeping items out of the way. Use career services early and often for all of your professional development needs by making an appointment, attending a workshop, or going to career fairs. You can access all of this by heading over to Handshake. Just log in with your SSO. And of course, UMKC alumni still have full access to our services. Feel free to reach out via email anytime at careerservices at umkc.edu if you have any questions. It is important to us to be transparent about our identities because they impact the way we navigate the world and have these conversations. We do not claim to be the experts on topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. We will be bringing in experts to speak on their research and lived experiences in an effort to make progress towards better outcomes for our students, listeners, and everyone out there. We will also be approaching this with a full understanding that we all come to this with certain privileges and with a mindset to learn and grow. Before we start this conversation, we wanted to provide a brief content warning. In part one and part two of our conversation with Una, there are discussions of sexual harassment, sexual violence, suicide, and anti-trans discrimination. There is also an intersex slur used. In this episode of Diversity and Professionalism, we've asked Una Nelling to discuss her unique experience of being an out and proud intersex transgender person in the STEM field as it relates to gender, respect, and safety. Una Nelling, pronouns she, her, is the section leader for reliability, fuels, and efficiency at Black & Veatch Corporation, where she has worked for nearly 28 years. She is a licensed professional engineer and an adjunct professor of mechanical engineering at UMKC. Her primary work is environmental engineering to reduce pollution at fossil fuel plants and to encourage renewable energy use worldwide. Una is also both an intersex and transgender person who presented as male for 18 years in her professional life and after transition has walked the walk as a woman in that same field for nearly a decade since. Over that time, she has accumulated a wealth of experience working in the United States and more than 15 countries in a variety of STEM roles. This experience has brought her significant wisdom on the innumerable gender-based differences in STEM, as well as the intersectional experience of being an out-and-proud transgender woman in a traditionally conservative field. It's really nice of you to have me on to talk about this very important subject. Thanks so much, Una. We're really excited that you're here. So I wanted to ask, you have this amazing background as an engineer, and you're truly at the forefront of your field. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your background and how you got here? 
Well, I'll talk about my background as a whole, I guess. I'm an intersex individual, which, if your audience isn't aware, is a person who has genetic, physical, or reproductive anatomy such that they can't be easily classified into the physical sex binary of male or female. An old word which is considered offensive nowadays is hermaphrodite, and it's not even factually correct, as intersex conditions can be so mild that a person never realizes they have it their entire life, or so profound it has significant health uh, impacts. Approximately one in a hundred to one in a thousand Americans is intersex, and I am one of those people. I was born with no apparent differences right away and was classified as male. And then in puberty, all of a sudden, I started to develop female characteristics. I had significant breast growth. I did not grow body hair. Other things occurred to me. I started to have a female shape. And due to not having health care access, we really couldn't go figure out what was going on. At the same time, I started to realize that my gender identity, I could not call myself a boy. I, I wasn't sure that I was a girl because this is the 70, late 70s, early 80s, and we really didn't know anything about this. You couldn't go to the library and find this out. You couldn't go on the internet because there wasn't one. You had to essentially guess for yourself. Not knowing really what was going on, I thought I was a boy with serious problems. <laughs> Time passes, and I get my first professional engineering job after I graduate from school. And I go to a an endocrinologist who runs a series of tests because she says, hmm, most men don't normally have a B cup. And because she identified me as a woman when I walked in, even in a, as a, wearing a suit and tie because I looked so feminine. She thought I was a butch lesbian or something. And then she called me up a couple of days later and said, you have female level estrogen and don't make any testosterone and explained to me that I was an intersex person. And But still, that didn't change anything because this is the early 90s. And you can't just change your gender identity or gender presentation. For goodness sake, it was still illegal to even be gay or lesbian in some parts of the U.S., let alone trans, which is what I would be. Finally, after suffering for years while my career progressed, I found a lovely young lesbian who I came out to about my history before our first date. Her only reaction was, oh, cool. Do you like Indian food? You know, so it was a pretty positive experience. We got married and which was made easier by the fact that I presented male and she was uh, from another country. She's English. And we leveraged that to get her in on a fiance visa, because if I was female, that wouldn't have worked. After a while, the living with the lie was impossible. Every morning I had to put on my suit and tie and I'd stand in front of the mirror and sometimes I would cry and say, remember how men act. Remember how you're supposed to act. You're supposed to be this way. You have to drop your voice. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to be the man for another day so you can keep a roof over your head and pay the bills and support your family. And one day it became too much and uh, I had a suicide attempt over the fact that I could never be what I was supposed to be. And because of the fact, being a very moral person, every day I was that other person, I was not only lying to everyone out there, I was lying to myself. I had to come out, and my company was guardedly supportive at first, and then became enthusiastically supportive once they figured out how to make it work. The problem that I faced, though, was that I sold and worked directly to clients around the world. 
So even if my company backed me 100%, you know, rainbow balloons and confetti and everything, if my clients didn't accept that the man named Ken was now a woman named Una, then I would be out of work all the same and it wouldn't be my company's fault. I had to write a coming out letter to more than 100 clients around the world. And out of that more than 100, I probably lost two, which was incredible to me because my field is a very conservative field. I'll never forget one client, very conservative client from Alabama, you know, Southern Baptist lay minister and really deeply conservatively religious who sent me a silver cross in the mail. And with the silver cross was a note that it was to help me on my new journey as a woman. And that, I think, said in a nutshell how I was uh, treated by my clients. And so that's how I got to where I am. And thanks to my intersex condition, which had been a curse when I was young, it meant I couldn't really build muscle mass. I was bullied and picked on and, for lack of a better word, tortured. You know, in the 70s and 80s, a boy that has breasts and looks like a girl is subjected to inhuman treatment by their peers. It gave me passing privilege. All of a sudden, within a very short length of time, I looked like any other professional woman in a skirt suit with my uh, laptop bag and uh, ready to hop on a plane. And it gave me a lot of advantages. Because of those advantages, I decided because of that, and because I had a firm foundation of a spouse that supported me and support throughout my life, I could not just submerge and go stealth. I had to be that person who got out there in the public eye and kept outing myself every time to say, this is who we are. This is what a real live transgender or intersex person looks like. We're not monsters. We're not demons. We're just everyday average people trying to work and play and live and love and just enjoy life like everyone else. I'm really glad I was muted because whenever you told me about that um, person sending you a cross and it was to help you on your journey, I almost audibly said, aw, but I'm, I'm glad I, I was able to hold that one in. So to follow that up and your experiences, you have a very unique perspective on the role gender plays in the STEM field from all of your experiences. When did you begin to see and experience those differences? Oh, wow. This was a serious wake-up call for me because being an intersex person and being trans by the nature of my gender identity not matching my presentation, being a woman inside, I always felt that I knew what it was really like to be a woman or that I could sympathize with my female employees, that I understood what it was like. But what I didn't realize is that because I presented male, I had a tremendous amount of male privilege that although I didn't want it, and although I wasn't cognizant of it, it was there and it was real. And in the very first major project presentation where I was the boss giving a presentation to a board of directors of a company on a research project, and it was a perfect, flawless presentation, technically, functionally, it was an A-plus presentation that should have had them throwing money at my feet. The CEO of the company was smiled and was nodding his head at me. Then he turned to my intern from K-State, just six months out of school, a male, and said, is this right what she's telling us? 
And immediately in that one moment, I felt this crushing sense of despair, of helplessness. I wanted a hole to open up in the floor and so I could just crawl inside and pull it in after me. And I said to myself then, oh, this is really what it feels like to be a woman in STEM and have all of your hard work, your accomplishments, your education and experience just overlooked on the basis of your gender. Now I get it. And it kept happening again and again and again. I kept having to reprove myself to clients, even telling them, you worked with me on this project before, don't you remember? And they're like, oh yeah, you did do that. Oh, I guess, I guess we can let you work on this. I noticed even though I had worked at more than a thousand power plants around the world, and I know my way around them, and I've been through their safety training, I've got their little, uh, you know, high-level visitor cards, which say I'm allowed to walk around. They would send a chaperone, even at plants that I'd been to 20 times before. They'd say, oh, well, we, before we send you out there, we're going to have someone escort you. Why? I know where it is. I, I know where the coal pulverizers are. You know, I've been working on them for years. It's okay. But this is Dave. Dave's going to make sure that, you know, you don't get hurt or that you don't need anything. And then, of course, there's the other side of it all where I started to face sexual harassment. It started off slowly, and then as I got more comfortable in my body, became more outgoing and more social, men seemed to take that as more of an invitation to intrude in my space personally. And it was in less than a year after I came out that I started to have the experience of men putting hands on my body in uncomfortable places, especially on airplanes, waking up on a transatlantic flight with a man's hand under your skirt, trying to find his way to whatever he wants to find, having men put an arm around your waist and pull you in, having, having men walk up to you at a Holiday Inn Express and hand you their room key card and say, I'm in this room, why don't you come up and see me? And this is a client. And it got worse and then it got better when I started to learn by hard experience the coping techniques that professional women use, the avoidance, the spidey senses that you use to change the conversation, get out of there, draw someone else's attention, not get yourself into the situation, not that it's your fault, but to have to substitute for the fact that some people just can't seem to keep their hands off you. You have to do all the heavy lifting for the fact that boys will be boys. And that's horrible. And it's terrible. And again, it was another thing that I didn't really appreciate. And I was venting about it in a support group at work once. And several other women told me of their experiences. And some of them, they had negative experiences on projects that I managed back when I was the old me, which ironically was the younger me. And I said, why didn't you come to me and tell me that this client was making you feel uncomfortable? I would have come down on them like a ton of bricks. I would have moved heaven and earth to make sure you were safe, protected, respected. And they said, because you weren't one of us then. And now you are, so we can talk to you about it. And I'm hoping, too, by coming out and talking about this reality, that it does help to break down those barriers from both sides to make male managers much more cognizant of the fact that we may not feel comfortable talking about it. You may have to look for other signs. You may need to involve third parties and to encourage the people that are victimized to report it. I shouldn't use the terms male or female because 
sexual harassment does occur both directions, and it occurs to the non-binary community as well, sometimes more so to non-binary persons, because non-binary persons are subjected to tremendous amounts of misinformation, disinformation, and discrimination, as if they are somehow more sexually loose or open than other people. And that's a terrible perception and a terrible thing that that community has to deal with. Wow. Thank you for sharing all that. And I'm so sorry to hear about those experiences. I think it's definitely a really good reminder to cis male supervisors that, you know, maybe that trust isn't inherent. You know, maybe you can't just expect people to inherently trust and and report those things to you and like having to look for those signs and do more of that intentional work. And it's also one of my most hated phrases is that boys will be boys. That expectation, oh, it's okay because they're boys. They're expected to do this. And that's something else that we just have to break. I've also had the privilege of being in in the safe spaces on both sides of the gender divide. I've heard how men talk about women behind their backs. I've heard how men size up women about the, the jokes, even about their own wives and girlfriends. And it's disgusting. And I have to admit, Many times I did not intervene. I certainly never joined in, but I kept thinking, is this actually safe? I'm here already among 10 other people. Is it really safe for me to be the one to stand out and do this? Sometimes erring on the side of safety meant that I let this behavior continue. And uh, this uh, verbal behind this behind the back gossiping and so forth. I'm very ashamed that I was not more brave and did not stand right up then and do it. You know, put my foot down and say, no, you you need to cut that out. But sometimes it's about survival. And I have I have all the male privilege in the world, and I am ashamed to say that I've done the same thing. We were it was the setting, we were at a career fair, and it was an employer just talking about another employer across the room and he felt safe saying some really inappropriate things about that other female employer and not trying to make a scene. I didn't contribute, but I I didn't outright denounce him and call him out in the middle of it. But it's something that I'm ashamed to say I didn't because I would now having these conversations, I wish I hadn't done something about it. Una, before we talk through more of our questions, you mentioned the terms stealth and passing. Would you mind defining what those mean to you for our listeners? I guess passing would mean, because we do live in a very strongly gender binary world, you know, that's not perfect and it's certainly not uh, any sort of ideal, but it's a reality that we have to face that has significant consequences for whether or not you keep a job, how you are treated in situations where you're vulnerable, such as uh, traveling while trans or traveling while non-binary. And, you know, passing means being able to be typically perceived as a member of one side of that binary or the other. That is, being a people looking at you and not giving you the intense male gaze, as they call it, of what is that over there? Is that a man or a woman or one of those whoozy what's-its, you know? I don't know what they're called, the Transformers, uh, Decepticons. And so passing for a long time in our community meant survival and life. And because if you didn't pass, you didn't get employment. 
you did not get access to government services, and you generally faced a very hard life uh, historically, especially as a transgender person. The people that passed had the most success, and that was due to the ignorance, prejudice, and fear that drove the bias. Being stealth basically means not only passing, but being totally silent about your past gender presentation or identity or how you were perceived. Back in the day, there used to be this thing called deep stealth, and I knew a couple of people that did it, where you cut, it was like being a witness protection. You cut all ties to everything in your life. You got in your car with your possessions. You drove across the country. You started presenting as your true gender and took up a new name, got a fake social security card, and rebooted your life, very much like witness protection. I have a couple friends that did that. In this day and age, with the way we are tracked and identified and classified and sorted through data, innumerable government databases, you really can't do that anymore. So stealth would just be the definition of never coming out about yourself and taking great pains to hide all links to your past as much as you could. I really didn't have an option for doing that. After an 18-year career presenting mail, I could not reboot my entire career and pretend like the 70-some technical papers and seven books and all the engineering projects that I'd done around the world didn't exist. They all had my name on it, you know? So the only way I could have gone stealth is to essentially put on a hairnet and make french fries at McDonald's. That, that, that's about it. Or do like roofing work or something where I'd be totally, you know, paid in cash. And that was another aspect of it that was difficult. I have to say about dead naming too, which is part of this, dead naming and misgendering. Even with all the privilege that I have, the very strong backing of my spouse, my company, all my friends, dead naming hurts. It hurts a lot. I'll give you an example. I'm sitting in my nice engineering office. I'm a you know senior project manager. I'm doing this and signing that, and you know no way am I a loser. And another project manager forwards an email that I sent about 15 years ago about a project saying, "Hey, this this client is interested in some more work like you did back then. You know this is the this is the last email I have on it. What do you think? Is this a great opportunity?" I look down, I see that old name, and my heart just stops. Just seeing that name in the email, and I pushed myself back from my desk, and I just take a breath, and I got up, and I had to take a walk. It impacted me because it brought all of those bad experiences and that dysphoria and dysmorphia and fear, all of it came crashing back to me. And I realized this person was a friend. They were a strong ally. They didn't realize that my old name hurt me that much. They were trying to give me a lot of nice work. It was ignorance. And so I just acted like no big deal and went about my day. And misgendering, you know, earlier today, someone on the phone called me, sir, my voice is not doing well today. I've got really bad allergies. Some people, some of your listeners out there will probably think I sound like a boy. On good days, no one does it. On days where I'm clogged up and stuffy, yeah, I sound like this. That hurts. Let me put it this way good friend of mine is a transgender person of color. And she said to me one day, this is how bad misgendering is. White people can call me the N-word with anger all day long. 
And that doesn't hurt as much as when my grandma refers to me as he. And she's not doing it on purpose. She just keeps forgetting. Because then that sort of invalidates your entire experience, your entire identity. I guess for lack of a better word, it invalidates your soul when someone calls you that. I guess that's the best way I can put it. And yeah, it does hurt. I thought that was really powerful the way that she put that. Yeah, I I appreciate you sharing those things and your friend's perspective too. I think especially, you know, with maybe some of our cis listeners who are students right now or like maybe have entered the workforce recently, having an understanding of how truly damaging that would be to dead name or misgender a colleague or, you know, a professor or a friend. I think that's a really helpful reminder for them to get. So next, I wanted to talk about your experiences working internationally. How would you compare your lived experience as an intersex and trans professional in STEM in the U.S. versus in some of the other countries you've worked in? Well, I'm glad you asked that. I know we talked about it a little bit before the interview. You know, traveling while trans or intersex is, it can be scary at times. You can travel safely if you have planning, if you have preparation, if you have backup plans, and you know the rules before you go. Culturally speaking, when I transitioned in the U.S., I found, because I'm a very observant person being a scientist, there's a thousand little different nuances in the way that people treat someone they perceive as falling into one of the two binary categories. And it's different in every other country as well. Every country has its own differences. All of a sudden, with my European clients, for instance, when I was greeted, I was being kissed on the cheeks by the men and women. They call it a bussing, basically. It's a French word. And so especially the other women engineers would do that. They never did that before. When I presented mail, they would do the American handshake. Other women engineers platonically would be very close to me. They would sit right next to me, put an arm around my shoulders. It was like being with sisters, kind of. And whereas they were very distant before when I presented mail. When I went to work in Taiwan with a client I've worked with several times, as a woman, they were very distant to me. They did not want to have social time. They did not want to go out for the big dinners afterwards. They stayed at arm's length. They were very formal. There was a tension in the room. And that could have been because of my transgender status, or it could have been because of my female status. I'm not really sure about that. In India, where I do quite a lot of work, it is a very, it's difficult to say because as a white person, I don't have the experience of an Indian woman. As a white person, especially a manager, I am treated differently than an Indian manager would be. So it's hard to say, but there are many, many little differences when traveling that you have to be aware of, especially safety ones. For instance, my security people tell me that there are about 33, maybe 40 countries that I just simply can't go to. It is way too dangerous for me to travel to them as a trans or intersex person. Many countries they will not let me go alone to as a woman traveler. And I have to realize that, for instance, if I go to Indonesia, I need to bring a headscarf. That's just the way it is. You stand out if you are in a predominantly Muslim country and you are not covering your hair. And you just simply don't want to attract attention. I was also shocked even in a relatively, I thought, you know, gender-friendly country like Thailand, 
when in Chiang Mai, there's an entire city center area that women aren't allowed in. They stopped me and my spouse at the gate and said, sorry, sorry, ma'ams, you know, no, no women can enter this part of the city. And we thought it was a joke, but it was real. One thing, too, about traveling while trans. Okay, I'm a very small person. I didn't make testosterone at any point in my life. I, I'm not one of those people that has the overhead bag that won't fit in the bin. Mine fits, but it's heavy. It weighs about half my body weight. So when I presented male, I struggled to lift this 55-some pound bag up there. And I would ask men for help. And they would sneer at me. They would look like, what's the matter, buddy? You need to work out more. You need to try CrossFit. Like, hey, maybe you should leave some of that at home, you know? Or they would just roll their eyes. But as a woman, I even have a technique I've developed. What I do is I take my bag, lift it about four inches, and I sort of drop it with an exaggerated sigh. And then all of a sudden, there's men climbing over seats. Here, let me help you, ma'am. I'll throw that up here, ma'am. Don't worry about it. You sit down. I'll go get the stewardess, and, and we'll get you a nice drink on me. How about that? And I thought, well, that's kind of neat. Some people consider it patronizing. But at the same time, it's also horrible. Because why should a man who just doesn't happen to have the strength for whatever reason, why should they suffer? Why should they be looked down upon? Why should a male be mistreated because of their gender? You know, just because they don't have what it takes to lift their bag up. So there's all sorts of little experiences like that add up and it's impossible to catalog all of them. But definitely while traveling, it, it is a very different experience and I get around it because I'm a planner. I read up on every country I go to to find out, are there any, is there going to be anything special required at the airport? Um, you know, if, if they look back in the records. And they see that the last time I entered was under a, quote, male, unquote, passport. And now I have my female passport. This could cause some questions. So I have to have some answers for them. One thing I do is I memorize the words for transgender in any country that I'm going to. I memorize it. And I even will have written down on a piece of paper, my name is this. I am a transgender individual. This is my passport number. I am here on business. This is my visa ID, et cetera, et cetera, written in the local language that I can hand to someone. You know, I prepare and I double prepare and I triple prepare. Yeah, that's very valuable advice. And those are things that most people would never think about before a trip or maybe even never need to think about before a trip. I try to avoid trouble. I, you know, I, I'm not certainly not stealth, but at the same time, I am a very calculating person and I do my best to avoid trouble. And I try to pass on those tips and tricks and techniques to other trans people, non-binary or just the general LGBTQIA plus community. You know, I don't want my fam to end up in jail in China over a misunderstanding. Absolutely. Uh, we want everyone to protect themselves. And just like we were talking about before we started recording, this is not an attempt to hide anything about yourself. It's a step toward getting to your destination and back safely. And that's it for part one. Please be sure to join us next month for the release of part two. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and our YouTube channel, UMKC Career Channel. We also encourage you to join our LinkedIn group created for UMKC students, alumni, and employers to connect, post positions, and get updated 
on career prep information, tips, and tricks. This has been Diversity in Professionalism, a parallel series of Rue Career Radio brought to you by UMKC Career Services and Block Career Center. Until next time.